Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on October 14th, so we are not taking any listener calls or questions at this time. We are interested in your comments, though. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the eighth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We are featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is who's showing up to vote in November? We're gonna talk about research into voter motivation, how new information can affect the way people from form political opinions make political choices and ultimately take political actions and, and how research into voter motivation may be relevant to the 2020 general election. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Joining us on Zoom today is Jana Krupnikov. Jana is the Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Stony Brook University. Her research and teaching focuses on political psychology, political communication, political persuasion, and political behavior and empirical methodology. She was the um, research advisor to the Knight Foundation's 100 Million Voter Project. And her new book with John Barry Ryan is The Other Divide, Polarization and Disengagement in American Politics. It's now under contract with the Cambridge University Press. That must put you under a book deadline, Yana. Welcome. Yes. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Um, also on the Zoom conference is Meg McCormick. Meg is the main director and New England coordinator for the Campus Election Engagement Project. In 2019, Meg founded Maine Students Vote, the Maine Students Vote Initiative, a volunteer program housed with the League of Women Voters of Maine that is focused on youth peer-to-peer -peer nonpartisan organizing. Thanks for joining us, Meg. Yeah, thanks, Anne, for inviting me. And then finally, last but in no way least, is Shelley Cros Crosby. Shelley is the um, is currently and has been the Orono Town Clerk since 2016. Is that right, Shelley? Um, I want to say 2015. Okay, maybe you're right. <laughs> you would know. Uh, prior to that, she was the town clerk in Lincoln, I believe, and yeah. she is also president of the Maine Town and City Clerks Association. This fall, she was named Clerk of the Year by her peers at the Maine Town and City Clerks Association, a very high honor in her profession. Welcome, Shelley. So it's said that every election is determined by the people who show up. With the 2020 general election shaping up to be a very high stakes contest, what do we know about who is showing up and why? Will turnout be different this year than it was in 2016, which was different than it was in 2018? Or will the same people show up and with a different attitude or with the same attitude? So Yana, let me put it to you first. Recap for us the research that you were involved with at the Knight Foundation and what you learned about the reasons why people sit out elections. So when we think about uh, voter turnout and who votes, um, one of the things that emerges is that there are kind of these two groups of people. Um, one group of people is people that you can reliably count on to turn out and vote. Um, one group of people are people that um, 
are probably not going to turn out to vote. Um, and somewhere in the middle um, is this group of occasional voters that is, is a much more difficult to capture group. So the Knight Foundation report is um, an interesting and in some ways unusual survey in that it provides an oversample of people who do not vote. Uh, looking through people's voting histories, the report really provides a kind of critical look at people who have not voted in numerous previous elections, comparing them to people who actually voted really regularly. Um, and so what really emerges is um, kind of patterns about who is a non-voter and who is a regular voter. Um, Non-voters are less engaged with their communities. They're likely less likely to participate in volunteer activities. Um, and one, I think, of the most important dividing factors between these two groups is in how people follow news. Non-voters um, are less likely to follow information about the election. They report that they're much more likely to just bump into news. So in other words, they're not really seeking out political information. They're not searching out for um, kind of things about politics for things about the candidates. And the report though really reinforces decades and decades of political science research um, on voting and non-voting. Uh, people who are non-voters are part of different social networks. And I don't mean like Twitter or Facebook. I literally mean people that you're friends with. Uh, people who are non-voters are much more likely to have friends who are non-voters. They're more likely to come from families who are non-voters. Whereas people who are in fact voters um, are part of these groups of other people who vote. They're more satisfied with their communities. They're more satisfied with their lives. So really the Knight Foundation report reinforces something that political scientists have known about um, the regular voters and the regular non-voters for a while, which is that there's this greater sense of community embeddedness among voters, and there's a greater sense of interest in politics among voters as well. I mean, that just makes it seem like so much inertia, keeping non-voters away from the polls. Um, Meg, I'd be curious to hear from you in the work that you're doing with students, whether you observe what Jan is talking about and how difficult you find it to change that momentum among young people. So yeah, we, we have a few statistics here. Um, in 2018, 71% of 18 to 29 year olds were registered to vote in Maine, but only 36% of them actually voted. So that's a big gap. And we see that on college campuses, not only in Maine, but across the US. There's usually a gap between 15 and 30% um, percentage points between voter registration and then voter turnout. Some reasons you know, that have been cited, um, you know, one, young people haven't been contacted by a campaign before. I think that's often reported. And you know, um, in, in, in addition to that, a lot of times young people are citing that they don't know enough about who's running or they don't have enough information or they don't trust the candidates. I think um, that's a big one. They feel like they're either spinning um, information and they don't know what's a reliable source of information. Um, so those are some of the top reported um, reasons why what we hear from our students, why they're not showing up to the polls. In addition, I would you know, 
say that often students have said that they're too busy. Um, you see that more around young um, white non-voters. Um, and then youth of color often report that they um, aren't showing up to the polls because they lack the you know, proper ID. Um, this is often in other states, but um, the proper identification. That business about sense of community, you know, and we'd heard some research from Nancy Thomas at Tufts last year that said the campuses that had the highest voter turnout were not the most political campuses. They were the campuses that had the tightest sense of community in their student body. Um, and it must be really hard to, you know, cultivate community in order to get people to vote. I mean, what yeah. kind of tactics does that take? Yeah, you're really building off of personal networks. And so we, we, we've seen research show that when you assign a group of people a voting captain, someone that's responsible for them for giving their information that's within their personal network, that can increase voter turnout, I think they said upwards of 20%. So that's why I think when we see, you know, if some of the smaller campuses here in Maine, the ones with a stronger sense of community, just to date, you know, say a I am thinking of a campus that has a population size of 1700. We've already talked, we've already tracked that we've talked to a thousand students. And of those a thousand students, we've registered personally 500. So, I mean, those are, th that's where you can kind of see that peer to peer outreach being most effective compared to the larger campuses. And if you're working with a larger campus, that's really when you have to kind of break down to identity groups and how are you targeting, like, how are you mapping out the um, identity universe. Now, Shelly, you're in a college town mm -hmm. and um, you're the first face that a lot of first time voters see you in your office. Um, what's been your experience with new voters at the Orono campus? Um, I am very fortunate in Orono that I have a very engaged political science and um, community forum at UMaine that works with their students. And so just for example, in 2016, we registered over 2,400 people, the majority of which were students. Um, our line started at 7 a.m. in the morning and went until 8.15 at night. They wrapped the track um, all day. There was never a break. Um, this fall, even with COVID, we were able to get in the hands of every single student at MoveIn a green voter reg card. They had students there that could answer general questions about registering to vote. Um, they have had several on-campus get out and vote activities this very Saturday. We are hosting a um, in-person voter registration drive slash, you know, cast your absentee ballot. Um, so I, I, I hear what everyone is saying, and I know you folks look at Maine versus national um, statistics, but when I talk about Orono, I, I feel students are very engaged. They are very connected. Um, I have been receiving on a day-by-day -day basis since the beginning of middle to September green voter reg cards from our college students. We mm -hmm. try to work very closely to make sure that all of the necessary documents are procured and are available. We've worked with the Secretary of State's office to explain what the Main Street program is. And the Main Street program is their portal 
which gives them access to all of their residency documents and all of the things that we would need for voter registration. Um, there are meetings that happen year round with the MTCCA in the Secretary of State's office among the college towns to talk about how we can improve access to voter registration and um, absentee voting. And then of course the elections process. And so I, in my opinion, based on my experience, I feel like Maine does a great job at getting to the youth population. Mm -hmm. um, that, no, that's, that's great to hear. Um, and, and if I may, I want to just applaud Shelley and, and the town of Orno for all of your efforts. We would say the University of Maine is a very engaged campus because you have, you've had years of communication and you do work um, in tandem together to make sure that students have, you know, according to the Higher Education Act, college campuses have to make a good faith effort to make sure that voting registration is accessible and somewhat easy to, to students. And you see that being done um, at University of Maine. They've incorporated it into their orientation and they work very closely with their town right. um, clerk's office. Yeah, now how, how important is it for people to think that it's not that hard? Because you know there are steps that you have to go through and it can be daunting. Does that turn people off? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, so if we think about just individual psychology, the easier you think that something is, the more likely you are to do it. And that's not just voting. That's literally about um, about everything. Like how many things do we put off because, because we think they're just going to be too difficult. Um, and so the more difficult somebody believes that voting is going to be for them, the less likely they are going to do it. And I think this is especially important. Um, in this particular election, when there are um, considerable barriers that people perceive to voting, especially health barriers, for example, um, people's concerns about mail-in ballots. Uh, so the extent to which that people believe that um, they're going to be barriers to them to turning out, the more steps they believe they have to take, the more difficult they perceive each step to be. Um, uh, the more difficult, uh, for example, it is for them to perceive that they can fit it into their day to vote, uh, the less likely they're going to be to do it. So communication about the fact that this is something people can accomplish, it's something that is actually accessible to them, I think is critical in encouraging a lot of people to turn out to vote. It's really important in all of the work that we're doing to um, let people know that this is something that's possible for them and that um, there are people there to help them. Um, you're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is who's showing up to vote in November. Our guests are Yana Krupnikov, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Stony Brook University, Meg McCormick, Maine Director and New England Coordinator for the Campus Election Engagement Project, and Shelley Crosby, Orono Town Clerk and President of the Maine Town and City Clerks Association. This program was pre-recorded on Wednesday. No listener calls are being taken at this time. So Jan, I wanted to ask you, I, I, I mean, I helped somebody register to vote yesterday who hadn't voted in 11 years, right? And so I'm thinking, well, wow, this is going to be a big turnout year. I mean, really, do we think it's going to be a big turnout year, even considering COVID? Or is it going to be the same old crew that shows up again? What do you think? 
You know, so I don't like to be to make predictions um, in large part because I don't like to be wrong um, and to be uh, wrong on record uh, here, especially. Um, I mean, I certainly think that there is a lot of excitement about voting and about being part of the election process. Um, there are a lot of efforts to get out the vote. Um, I think people who are really politically engaged are much more engaged this year, I think, in terms of getting their friends out to vote, helping people register, helping people turn out, having this kind of networked experience. On the other hand, um, I think that uh, COVID, the threat for your health, is, is certainly a deterrent for people. People do get really concerned. Um, I think this idea of mail-in ballots, um, people are kind of uncertain about it. They're not entirely certain what they're going to do. They're not entirely certain um, how they're going to participate. And adding to this, uh, the idea that election day in itself is often successful because it's really social, because we all get to do something on one day and we're all part of it and we occasionally get stickers. Um, I think that is something that's quite mobilizing. So without that, um, uh, it's it, it's kind of difficult to imagine what voting is going to look like. I think another thing that's been happening is that images are emerging from states that have started early voting of incredibly long lines uh, of people just waiting for hours and hours to cast their ballots. And I think a really important question becomes, what effect is that going to have on other people? Are other people going to basically imagine that instead of giving a half hour of their day to vote, they now have to give six hours or four hours and so forth? Um, so I think we are basically weighing two important factors here. We're weighing extraordinarily high levels of motivation. Right. Something like 80% of people are reporting that this election is profoundly important, which is unprecedented. It's historically higher than it's ever been. On the other hand, we're also weighing an election that is putting more barriers in front of people than they have had in the past. So I think it's going to be kind of an interesting outcome to see which of these um, ends up dominating the voter pool, right? Is it the motivations or is it this set of barriers, right? Or, or, or is it all just going to cancel each other out? How's it feeling to you on the ground at this point, Shelley? Sorry, I had to unmute myself. Um, so it is fast and furious in the trench. Um, we in Orno have already had more requests than we did in 2016's presidential. Um, at the beginning of the absentee process, we had a lot of confusion and a lot of um, concern around things that folks were hearing in the media um, and some of the nationwide problems they felt existed here in Maine. And so I was working with the MTCCA in trying to help triage with other senior clerks. How can we come up with bulleted um, responses to some of these concerns and questions? And then of course, you know, we had the postal question come up. We've had the question about the difference between an election day ballot and an absentee ballot. They really truly are the same ballot. It's just how they're cast and whether they're folded. Um, so this has been an election of education. Um, I have seen the voters want to know more of the in the weeds details 
than they have ever wanted to know before. And I think that is because what is going on in our nation right now. Right. Um, and, you know, people do have a right to ask and to yep. know what the process is. And so our position has been, if we get as many people as we can engaged and involved and helping and volunteering and they learn the process from A to Z, it takes the mystery out of it. Yep. It's interesting because, um, you know, in the last several years, we've seen a few different swing elections. You know, 2010 was a big Republican swing. Then Obama was a big swing in the other direction. Then, you know, we swung back. And, um, and you know, I'm just wondering, Yana, what your research shows about, you know, if these are basically the same people turning out, changing their minds, or whether it's really just different voters showing up and um, what are we expecting out of that this year? Like, are, are, pe are people still undecided at this point? So, so far, the 2020 election, I think, has one of the lowest undecided rates at this point uh, in a campaign season that have been in the past. It is certainly, um, compared to 2016, a much lower kind of undecided rate. Um, in terms of basically are, are these new voters, are people voting for who they've voted for in the past and so forth, um, there's always a small percentage of people who does change their minds from party to party. Um, some people who had voted Democratic in the past and vote Republican and vice versa. Um, the other question is, of those occasional voters, what proportion of those occasional voters turns out, uh, of course, because those occasional voters have preferences too. It's just a matter of they're going to turn out and act on their preferences. Um, there's, of course, always a question of how the independents will break um, in large part because people think that independents are kind of up for grabs. Um, this is not exactly the best way to look at it since independents actually often have very clear partisan preferences. They have clear preferences about who they want to vote for. They just don't necessarily want to share those partisan preferences. Um, and so I think oftentimes you have people who have actually very consistent, solid voting records, but you do have people who do change their minds. And the key, of course, is the occasional voters who um, are, you know, who come one election, leave another election and so forth, who often um, have a critical role in who exactly wins in a particular um, election scenario. You know, when we were um, prepping for this call, you talked to me a little bit about the attention gap. And, you know, I know everybody who's on this call today is into it. Like, we are following the news. We know how elections work. We are, you know, paying a lot of attention. But, um, and you're talking about this a little bit with the uh, chronic non-voters. They're just not paying attention. They're, it's not interesting to them. So, you know, I think that there are two ways to think about the attention gap. Um, and one way is to think about it in the sense that there are people who pay attention and there are those who don't. I think another sort of interesting way to think about the attention gap is that there are people who pay an outsized amount of attention, right? Like people who wake up and the first thing you do is you grab your phone and you basically start scrolling about everything that has happened. Um, and people who they know about really big political events, um, but they don't necessarily spend a large component of their day paying 
um, attention to things that they perceive to be smaller. Um, and I think that this is really kind of an important gap for people who pay attention to everything, for people whose day starts with the news, it may be really surprising and really shocking that somebody does not know, let's say, what um, uh, Amy Coney Barrett said in the hearing, right? And they don't necessarily know about the latest developments in Congress. Um, and that might be this perception that somebody is just not paying enough attention to politics. Um, though for a lot of people, that is just not something that's part of their lives. If something big happens, they'll know, right? They, they all know that the president was diagnosed with COVID-19. Um, they're not necessarily going to know all these details that people who are heavily involved in politics find profoundly, profoundly important. Right. It's so interesting. I, I mean, do you see that among your student clients, Meg? Um, our students are definitely uh, very issue oriented um, and that's what motivates them to show up. And so I think um, in the last six months, our students, well, between COVID, I, I know that that's one of the most important issues. What um, There was a poll somewhere and they were asked, you know, what's motivating you to, to show up um, in November? And, you know, I think it really was the CARES Act and students were left out of that. Their dependents, um, their, you know, student, their dependents, but they lost their campus jobs because campus closed. And they really started to understand okay, so who voted on this? And, um, you know, also down to, you know, down ballot of like, who's making decisions. Um, this all, we also see this with race relations and um, the, the protests and the demonstrations that we saw um, with the killing of George Floyd. And, you know, they were really understanding, the, you know, the local budget, the police budget, who votes on that and whatnot. So that's what we're seeing for our students just around, like they're very issue motivated and that's what's motivating them to get to the polls as well. It's, um, you know, and I'm wondering because of these couple of things that we've talked about, like, mm -hmm. um, are people likely to change their minds this late in the game? Like, is there any point, do people change their minds when they watch the debates or, you know, there was all that talk in 2016 about the Comey letter and the, Access Hollywood tapes. I mean, did that really change anybody's mind? Um, and is is are there still people changing their minds? Is there an October surprise phenomenon that we should be worried about um, this year? Yana, what do you think? Uh, well, we've had like what five different October surprises <laughs> right. uh, by this point. <laughs> right. um, I mean, I think it's it, it, changing minds is, is a really difficult one, um, in large part because if you start to feel less enthusiastic about your candidate, to change your mind, you basically have to switch parties. You suddenly have to vote for somebody who is of a, of a different partisan preference. Um, so this idea that people are going to watch the debates and they're going to make these decisions uh, is not something that political science research has seen borne out. Um, in a presidential debate, you get pretty strong cues about uh, what a person who's on your side does and what a person who's not on your side does, which makes people in this heavily political mindset, which makes it really hard for them to change how they behave. Um, research that looked at the 2016 election that looked, for example, at these late breaking um, events like the Comey letter and the Access Hollywood scandal suggests that people actually started to feel um, 
a bit more strongly about their candidate. They attempted to be kind of more defensive of the candidate they were supporting when these two things happened, in large part because they were giving given these very strong cues about how their side should behave and how, how a Democrat should behave and how a Republican should behave. So arguing that a debate is going to change someone's mind is, is a difficult task. Um, also, something that's difficult um, to, to suggest here is um, that people who haven't already made up their minds are necessarily going to watch the debates. Um, oftentimes, people are watching the debates because they want to see the candidate that they already know is better win and the candidate they already know is worse lose. Um, and so ultimately, a lot of the people who are viewers of, of debates are people who are, are in fact kind of really solid in, in their choices. You might get some people who get less enthusiastic about their candidate and in the end they decide it's just not worth it to vote, right? Because you need that sense of enthusiasm and motivation to cast a ballot. But changing one's mind, especially late in the campaign, is much more rare. This is not to say it's never going to happen. This is not to say that um, um, uh, you know, a newspaper or a magazine or some show is not going to find a voter who suddenly changed their mind because of something happened. These people certainly, they, they have to exist. They have to be out there. But if we're talking about averages, that kind of thing is, is going to be quite rare. It's interesting. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Yana Krupnikoff, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Stony Brook University, Meg McCormick, Maine Director and New England Coordinator for the Campus Election Engagement Project, and Shelley Crosby, Orono Town Clerk and President of the Maine Town and City Clerks Association. Our topic today is Who's showing up to vote in November? This show was pre-recorded on October 14th, so we are not taking listener calls at this time. We are interested in your comments, though. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. So, uh, you know, I'm going to ask you, you one more question about this, Jan, and then we'll let um, Megan Shelley weigh in on it, too. But, you know, when you know, because I'm one of those obsessive ones that reads all this stuff, right? Um, we hear all of this about um, persuasion voters or voter turnout. Like, is this election going to be determined um, by voters who voted for one candidate in 2016 and were persuaded to change for 2020? Or is it going to be decided by people who are just either turning out or staying home differently than what they did four years ago? Um, so I think the answer to that is, of course, both. <laughs> um, it's certainly going to be decided by who stays home and who turns out to vote. Um, and of course, there are going to be people who voted for one candidate in 2016 now voting for a different candidate in 2020. I would argue that if these changes happened, um, they were not 
only a function of a campaign. They were a function of experiencing, you know, four years of a particular uh, political context, which also is really, really important. Um, political campaigns elevate um, our perceptions about politics. They activate our political feelings, but ultimately, right? We, we, know, we don't just kind of close our eyes for three years and then suddenly wake up when it's campaign time and decide between two candidates. We experience politics on kind of a, a daily basis. So Meg talking about her students experiencing issues in politics, um, it's, it's uh, things they're experiencing all around them. So on some level, um, people who changed their minds were primed to do so by the political realities they saw around them. Of course, to that end, who turns out is also incredibly important. Um, there are going to be some people who don't feel like they can turn out in 2020 who did vote in 2016. There are going to be some people who feel much more inspired to vote in 2020. So the outcome of the election is an outcome of an almost infinite number of small individual processes happening over the course of years um, and can't necessarily be summarized as this one thing happened in October and then everyone voted one way. It's an incredibly complicated psychological process um, of people who basically take in what happens politically around them and then somehow kind of through their own realities uh, basically select a candidate who they have the most hope in for, for the next four years, essentially. And I mean, you're thinking about it that that way and then applying that to your work, Meg, because mm -hmm. I, I'm just thinking about it. it's a presidential election year. We're mm -hmm. going to have more first time voters this yeah. year than we're going to have, you know, for the next four years. Mm -hmm. um, so this is a big opportunity to get young, young people voting for the first time. And we know voting is a habit. Once you start, you're more likely mm -hmm. to continue. I mean, how, how does the cyclicality of this work in the student voter engagement world? Because, you know, lots of the people that you're working with well, are going to be gone four years from now, right? Yeah, and but we, we are observing an upward trend. So in 2018, student voting um, increased by 20 percentage points compared um, to the last midterms. Um, and so I do think it's a presidential election cycle. However, in Maine, we also have other very competitive races and that's where I'm seeing, so there's not a lot of, there's no, you know, this is no secret. There's not a lot of enthusiasm for the presidential candidates amongst young people, um, especially college students. But what we are seeing enthusiasm around is um, the Senate race as well as our congressional district two. Um, race here in Maine. And so that's where we're seeing that, that activation point. And we, you know, according to like other nationwide research, this is the highest levels of youth engagement we've seen. You know, it's been reported that like youth have now, like they're talking to their peers, that's up by 15% at registering other folks to vote. But we do recognize for first time voters that they, you know, Maine doesn't have online voter registration. And we have COVID policies in place where you can't do tabling. So how are we doing better registration drives and whatnot? So love to hear also, Shelley, of how if, if we've noticed any increase in voter registration rates. Um, last I checked, they were up by maybe seven percentage points here in Maine. But anyway, um, but we do know that, yeah, if we engage students now, we're growing voters, we're growing active citizens and um, 
yeah, that's the, we just want to make sure that they have as much information. We're also preparing, and Shelly can probably talk to this as well. But our campuses are often targets of um, disinformation campaigns. We're going to be getting a flyering, um, you know, weeks up to the election. Um, folks may be standing outside of polling places asking students, um, do you, you know, did you know that you, you could get kicked off your parents' health insurance if you voted in Maine or you'll lose your financial aid? So we're also preparing for that. Um, but curious, yeah, Shelly, to hear what, what you're hearing um, also on the ground in Orono. Well, um, in Orono, as I said, we started in very fast and furious right in August, September, trying to get students engaged and connected and have access to voter registration because we had no idea what the footprint looked like in um, lieu of the COVID. And we weren't sure um, how the governor was going to approach the restrictions. We didn't know if she was going to be like July or, you know, have even more or less restrictive um, activities. And so we really advocated our voter reg uptick is high because we're encouraging those students to get in early, get their stuff in order, and it will ease them on election day should they wait to cast their ballot on the actual election day. Are you hearing from other clerks that they're experiencing that same uptick or is that mostly? Yep. yep. And so um, clerks have been busy around the state between the absentee voting um, requests. And then of course, we have the electronic system where you can request a ballot electronically, but if you're not registered, then you automatically get rejected as not registered. And then you get a message from the state that says, this is how you can register by going online, downloading this form, you know, submitting it to your clerk. So around the state, we have seen, um, advanced advanced participation, which is awesome because then you don't have the lines on election day and there's less likeliness that you're gonna say to a voter, you don't have all of the documents that you need. We're gonna either have to do an oath or we're gonna have to have you get this document. So the sooner that voters across Maine that are not yet voters, but intend to be, can get registered, that's, an, that's a win-win for everybody. Um, one of the things that I did want to comment on because we were talking about changing the vote or people changing their minds or, you know, all these different pushes is I want to be very clear. Municipal clerks in Maine have to be neutral. We can't be engaging in those kinds of conversations in our polling places or our offices. We have to re represent every single person who walks through our door. So I really wouldn't have anything to offer on what that climate looks like because anytime someone starts to talk about their candidate or their passion with elections, <laughs> we shut her down. Right, right. <laughs> but um, I see the UMaine students being very engaged. I'm hearing that the Lewiston students are engaged, um, Bangor students, the Waterville students. I mean, mm -hmm. it's happening across the state. Right. And oh, and can I just ask real quickly? I think some national messaging that came, like I think there is a distress by voting by mail. And what we've heard, Shelly, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, but you know, we, when we, we've, um, what we've heard is that folks are requesting an absentee ballot, it doesn't arrive by a certain time and then they're going to vote early um, as well. So do you have any 
input on that we've we have some messaging out there mm -hmm. um, for our students but just yeah curious to hear your thoughts so basically i can just give you a general census of where it's at right now so a person requests a ballot and let's say hypothetically they requested that ballot in august to september and let's say that ballot went out october 1st it is reasonable to assume that it could take up to seven days for that ballot to reach them so if it, that ballot has not arrived in their home and it's been greater than seven to 10 days, then by all means, voters should call or contact their municipal clerk and say, listen, I ordered my ballot. It says on the tracker that Maine.gov has that you mailed that out on October 1st. It's October 14th. I don't have a ballot. That is a cause to get a second ballot. Um, and the clerk should very easily be able to reissue a second ballot, right? Um, and plan that the first ballot may show up someday, but it's going to be rejected, of course, because it wasn't received in a timely fashion. Um, if that voter has requested an absentee ballot and they've received it in their home and they have it in their home and they show up at the municipal office and they say, I have a ballot here and I'd like to vote in person, then in all likeliness, the clerk is going to invite them in if they have the spacing. And if they're not under a COVID restriction and the lobby isn't full, they're going to, in most cases, instruct that voter to vote that same ballot they were already issued because that is a ballot that has been issued to them. It's the same ballot as election day. It's only being handled in a different way. So the voter would vote that ballot. Now, having said all of that, if we have a person who spoils a ballot or they lose a ballot, or let's say they tear it up, which we they never encourage, ballot, right? they ne we never encourage that. But if that was to happen, then the clerk at that point could issue a second ballot and we would deem that ballot spoiled by the voter. Right. Um, at one point, there was concern. I'm not sure where the concern is now because I haven't followed it, but there was concern about possibly running out of ballots. And the reason that we had that concern was there was some advocacy going on where people were being told, get your absentee ballot. And then, oh, well, if you change your mind, just show up on election day. And that seems to be, you know, from a clerk's perspective, that seems to be a little rough to yep. work within yeah um because it's it's an added expense to the state it's it's a lot of paperwork and then we have this question question of all these ballots being out there and a voter could potentially you know have a couple of ballots floating around so um and, and of course then we we really don't want to run out of ballots either like we don't whatever, right um I wanted to um, ask you something else about, we're talking about voter, increased voter in registration and more voter activity. But I know some of your work, ha Yana, has gone about um, party affiliation and um, whether extreme partisanship is kind of a turnoff to people. At the same time, I think I've seen in Maine that party enrollment is going up. So how does extreme partisanship play into voter motivation in this particular moment because it's pretty extreme right now. 
Well, I think that there's, there are a number of different questions here. So one is, does somebody register with the party when, when they register to vote? Um, and for example, where, where I live in New York, you actually have to register with the party in order to be part of the primaries. So it Same makes sense that, yeah, so it makes sense that party registration would go up during an election year because people want to be part of the primary process. Um, in terms of extreme partisanship, uh, I think in some sense, the question is uh, how extreme is extreme, right? Um, what do you see of partisanship around you? If what you see of partisanship around you is basically two groups just kind of screaming at each other on television, partisanship is not necessarily going to be something that you want to be to be part of. Um, in some of, of the research I've done with my co-authors, we see that when people think about political parties, they imagine that party's worst members, right? So they imagine uh, um, kind of the people that the party might not necessarily want to uh, hold up as their exemplars. So in some sense, I think we have to think of political partisanship as, as the worst members of this group. And what does that mean to other people? And for a lot of people that really pushes them away from politics, or at the very least, it sort of pushes them away from calling themselves members of the party. Is it going to push everyone away from the party? No. Is it going to push some people toward identifying themselves as independent? Yes. And so, in fact, I think when you look at ebbs and flows in people's uh, in political party members or in the nation overall, I think a lot of these ebbs and flows might be people who, for whatever reason, don't necessarily want to say that they are a member of a party, especially when the party has, let's say, politicians that are behaving in ways that people don't necessarily want to associate with. Hmm. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Yana Krupnikov, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Stony Brook University, Meg McCormick, Maine Director and New England Coordinator of the Campus Election Engagement Project, and Shelley Crosby, Orono Town Clerk and President of the Maine Town and City Clerks Association. This program was pre-recorded on October 14th. No listener called are being taken. I really got two more things that I want to try to squeeze in here before the end of our time is up. Um, one is to just follow up on this political identity thing that Yana was just talking about and to ask Meg to reflect on it. I've heard or read in some places that people's political identity is formed for a lifetime when they're sort of college age, right? Like whatever was going on in the world and the party you picked at that time is one that you may be likely to stick with for a mm -hmm. long time. Are, are you noticing a, a, an increase or a decrease, an attraction to party affiliation or revulsion in the, the work that you're doing with young people? Um, well, our work is nonpartisan, so. Um, you may not but, know. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I can hear it. Um, um, but, you know, we are focused on, you know, um, yeah, a nonpartisan approach. However, I think there there has been lots of research and data out there that uh, most a lot of college campuses, you know, are uh, lean a certain way. Um, and we do encourage students to get volunteer with campaigns of their choice, just because we know that it activate, activates a life 
lifelong um, commitment. However, I have noticed this last year, as I was, we have about 100 fellows across the state at different campuses, and the fellows talked to their peers about voting, and they said, I am, and the, the folks that we recruited, um, there's obviously people on the ground that are you know, partisan organizations that are doing very aggressive canvassing and organizing. But the students that we're attracting are kind of the students who are a first time voter. Their parents have never talked to them about voting. Um, they didn't participate in a civics class in high school. And so what I'm hearing on the ground is that they feel much more comfortable talking to their peers about not really about who to vote for, but about how to vote and making sure that they have access to this information. So, I mean, we, this is our, so this is what I'm seeing right. um, just because that is our, our, um, how we're, how we're oriented. So, and I've got one more suite of questions here and then we'll, we'll try to wrap up. But the last thing I wanted to sort of ask you is what, um, what effect n sort of negative things have to do like voter shaming, like, we're not going to know how you voted, but we're going to know whether you voted. Um, push polling, you know, trying to drive a wedge between a person and their candidate by suggesting unpleasant things about the candidate. Um, even voter intimidation, like malicious mm -hmm. at the polls and things designed to try to scare people away. Do these things work, Yana? So the one thing that I will say uh, that you, you shouldn't shame people into voting if you want them to vote. Um, if your goal is to encourage your friends to vote, please don't shame them in, into doing so. Um, I think Meg just talked about her students basically talking about the process of voting, not who you vote for. That is exactly what people should be doing. They should be talking about voting. They should be talking about what happens if you vote, how to get to vote. Um, in fact, students uh, I talked to here at Stony Brook are basically encouraging their friends to vote in the manner that you would invite your friend over to dinner, right? Like we're all gonna get dinner, we're all gonna vote. Kind of the same sort of ease of, of doing this, this thing. And it's exactly what you should be doing. It should be a social kind of community activity, mm -hmm. something that seems easy. Please don't shame people. Um, uh, shaming actually is not super effective voting. It's not actually super effective in health behaviors either. So it's not the best strategy. Um, in terms of other things like telling people we'll know if you didn't vote and so forth, there's some research to suggest that these kind of impersonal, what they term social appeals can be kind of effective. Um, that's different than somebody that you're friends with or somebody you go to school with shaming you. Um, uh, that's just sort of telling people that they are aspects of, of an entire community. Uh, so um, my sense is, is that positive appeals, if you're going to convince somebody to vote, are probably going to be much more effective than heavily negative appeals um, if your goal is to have the friends that you want to vote actually turn out to vote. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of other more negative appeals, there's certainly, I think, uh, people who are going to engage in these, in these negative appeals. Um, my kind of hope would be that there is um, less airtime given to highly negative appeals of what might happen to people at the polls, because I think that might be discouraging for, for some people. Um, but again, I think the bulk of the research would suggest the socially networked 
positive, we're going to do this and we can do this and we are capable of turning out to vote approach should be most effective to getting a lot of people to turn out to vote. Are you getting those questions, Shelley? Like, is the polling place going to be safe? Am I going to be harassed at the polling place? Is that coming up among the voters you're talking to? Good. No, not right now. Um, the, the concern more or less is about the COVID mm -hmm. and how is their health going to be guaranteed? I mean, how are we going to be able to get as many people that need to get through the polling place in with the current governor's restrictions? I have not heard concerns of any type of um, coercion or harassment or, you know, bullying. I, that that has not been an issue um, as of yet. But this is a different election climate than what we've had in the past because For sure. I, normally at this time right now I would have in person going and people would be walking in at their convenience and I would have times of the day that I'd have as many as eight or 10 voters all here at the same time voting. Um, and that's not the case. You know, we're having right. to focus and pare down how we approach our voters. Yeah. Well, we are coming to the end of our time and I want to allow room in the schedule for each of you to give some parting thoughts about our topic today. Um, so just take a couple of minutes. We're not dead out of time. Um, and, what is the most important thing that you want our listeners to take away from this conversation? Let me ask you first, Shelley. Mm -hmm. The most yeah. important thing you want voters to take away from today's conversation. Probably the most important thing is your municipal clerk is here to help you. Um, we do have resources on our website that can get you partway there. If you have further questions, then of course, you know, please, call us or email us. Just know that clerks are incredibly busy. So if we don't respond um, as instant as Google, that doesn't mean your question isn't important. And if you at all can request an absentee ballot, please do so. Um, the only reason we are really pushing the absentee is because of some of the restrictions and some of the limitations that we're under. And we would feel terrible to have long, long lines on election day and people who maybe get to the end of the day and they've been there for hours. Yeah. So if we can get the majority of Maine voting absentee um, and they can get their request in early enough to allow the couriers to do their job, then everything will go easy. And if you've sent one request, please don't send more. Right. Um, only send in one request. Yeah. Meg, how about you? What are the parting thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners at the end of the show today? Yes. Um, make a voting plan. Um, how are you planning on voting? Knowing your deadlines. Um, I would check out the Secretary of State just released um, not just released, but updated their website a little bit. So it has um, more in-depth information, but also as Shelly mentioned, call the clerks, but know that, you know, you know, I would say at this point, it's like six or seven times out of 10, you'll still get a live person on the line, which is amazing. And they're friendly and they want to help you um, vote early and talk to three of your friends about voting um, plus three. 
to the polls. Um, that's what we're kind of focused on. And for my folks on college campuses, um, building up enthusiasm and visibility about the upcoming election. Maine does have same day voter registration so you can register to vote and vote on the same day prior to the election or on election day. And um, you're the best people to talk to your family and friends about voting. So um, send out those text messages and um, do those direct messages on Facebook and Instagram and, and uh, let's make history. Yana, can you beat that? <laughs> no, I think that was pretty great. I think we should end there. Um, oh, you've got a couple minutes, so go ahead and flush it out. <laughs> you know, I will say, um, don't shame, to just to reiterate, don't shame people into voting. Acknowledge that there are people who have real genuine reasons for feeling uncomfortable going into polling places, that this is not just people not wanting to be in the process. There are people who have reasons to, to worry about this. Um, and ultimately, again, encourage people to vote, talk to people about voting. It's okay if you can't convince your friends and family that they should vote. It's okay if some conversations don't go well. Um, not everyone's gonna agree with you, but ultimately, um, kind of pointing people to places that can help them vote is, is the best step we have to encouraging people to actually cast their ballots. That's great. I want to thank you all for joining the conversation today. We are now pretty much out of time. So thank you one more time to our guests this afternoon, Yana Krupnikov, Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Stony Brook University, Meg McCormick, Main Director and New England Coordinator for the Campus Election Engagement Project, and Shelley Crosby, Orono Town Clerk and President of the Maine Town and City Clerks Association. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum this afternoon, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. We're streaming live at WERU.org. Our website for the League is lwvme.org. For more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in our series, you can also subscribe to our podcast at lwvme.org or email us at downeast at lwvme.org. Coming up next is Counterspin, followed by Between the Lines on your community radio station, WERU-FM. <laughs>